Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. On today's show, we look ahead to this weekend's Mets Hall of Fame induction ceremonies, and I look back at my weekend in Denver. But first, we watch games. And often we get surprised and disappointed in our Mets. And we say, why did he let that pitch go right down the middle? Why didn't he swing? Or they miss a play in the field. And we say, why didn't they jump higher? Why didn't he do that? And we don't think about it much more after that. But maybe we should. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about empathy today. A phrase that probably doesn't enter our thinking. It's not on the back of the baseball card, as they say. There is no category for it except humanity, I suppose. Been thinking about it in the context of at least three pitchers who pitch for the Mets who have acknowledged depression in their lives as an issue in their careers, as well as off the field. Bill Pulsifer, who pitched for the Mets in the 90s and 2000. Taylor Buckholtz, a reliever who was here not that long in 2011, and Trevor May, who we'll remember from 21 and 22. Trevor May, who most recently acknowledged these issues. You have to figure that if three players have said it out loud across a quarter century, you can infer that there are plenty more who don't say a word that have things bothering them that maybe they haven't had diagnosed. May step forward this year in Oakland made me think of what he said after the 2021 season, a year when he pitched well for the Mets, but not flawlessly went on social media and said, I owe you my very best version every time I take the field, my most prepared competitive version, all the effort I have in my body. I give that every damn day. I'm not a monkey that dances in proportion to the amount of nachos you buy at a game. And I think this was after Trevor May had probably heard it on social media. He was one of the more active Mets. Uh, He had his own sort of video blog or live broadcast, I suppose. And it was a very outgoing guy, and it was tough to see that he said, I, I think the phrase he used, his engine was overheated, uh, speaking metaphorically. And now he's back pitching for Oakland, and uh, you know, all we can do is wish him the best. And keep in mind that this sort of thing happens. I don't know if this is an extreme example, but I think there are you know, other things that we, we ought to keep in mind when we're getting mad at pitchers and getting mad at players. Pitchers in particular, whether they're on the cusp of being sent down or released, or they appear pretty secure in their place on the roster, tend to not come clean on physical injuries. Braden Looper comes to mind. He pitched the entirety of 2005. Was something wrong with his shoulder? Was he being a great tough-it-out teammate who didn't want to let the Mets down and was going to pitch through pain? Or was he being short-sighted and hurting the Mets as it became clear he wasn't the same lockdown closer he'd been the year before? At the time he revealed what he'd been pitching through, I wasn't empathetic. I saw a pitcher who didn't get the rest or treatment or whatever he needed. I never really stopped to think, poor guy must be hurting. To be fair, I wouldn't have thought about Brayden Looper at all had he not been a Met. But if I was cheering for him in good times, maybe I should have stuck by him in less good times. Many years ago, when I knew somebody who knew somebody, let's say, I learned that a relief pitcher the Mets had acquired midseason, somebody who had a track record, and wasn't living up to it as a Met, had endured a family tragedy that he was trying to cope with in the same time frame, that he was trying to adjust to a new team and a new city and whatever pitching issues might have been challenging him. I don't know if the fans in the stands, had they had that information, would have greeted him more warmly or less harshly than they did. I'd like to think it would have made a difference. 
I'd like to think we'd remember in all cases that ball players are human beings. Pete Alonso survived what could have been a much worse car accident on the eve of spring training last year. We probably forgot that every time he bailed out on an inside pitch. During the COVID-shortened season, Wilson Ramos was separated from his family in Venezuela and struggled noticeably at and behind the plate. After a while, I stopped remembering that I had read the separation was bothered him a great deal and just wanted to know who we could get to catch instead of Wilson Ramos. I don't know what Jed Lowry was going through as he tried to work his way back from an injury that limited him to a handful of plate appearances across a two-year contract. I know I wasn't hesitant to attempt making a good Jed Lowry jest that occurred to me. Listen, these guys are paid well and adored for their trouble. But everybody has troubles. I've never been one for booing, but sometimes it almost feels that, that if you're a fan and you're not booing, you're almost not doing your job or playing your role. Social media, which didn't exist until about 15 years ago, means we can blow a gasket for others to see, probably not realizing that the others might include the player or the broadcaster or the writer who were momentarily steamed at. We devote a great deal of time and passion to our team. Of course, we're going to get frustrated and disproportionately mad when everything we wish to flow smoothly doesn't go according to plan. But would it kill us to keep it to ourselves sometimes or take the personalities out of it or just think they made a mistake? I'm a 60-year-old man, and more and more I feel like a bit of a jerk getting mad at some kid in his 20s, whether he's striking out or using an awkward phrase behind a microphone. At the same time, there's that inner voice telling the fan not to be a sap or a sucker, not to accept mediocrity. I'm sure the Mets didn't mean to lose two out of three in Chicago, then two out of three in Colorado, and half of their games through the first third of this season. I'd be disingenuous if I didn't use my humble platforms to say, they haven't played very well and this isn't good. But a little calibration and a little moderation in one's criticism of those we theoretically support would probably make us better human beings. Last October, I was furious when Scherzer had that ineffective outing, ineffective is generous, in the playoffs following his ineffective outing in Atlanta. And I let you people know that. Greg and I had a tough conversation on this show, and not once did it cross my mind. Maybe something else was going on with him. Maybe it didn't matter. Maybe he's a professional being paid bazillions of dollars, and he should be able to put it aside. But perhaps we should consider that something else could have been going on, even if it's as simple as a cold. We heard about Pete Alonso's cold when he was in Chicago, and he hit a home run, and everyone was amazed. Pete Alonso had a cold. Made me think of the Gates Elise article in Esquire, Frank Sinatra has a cold. And how many podcasts about the Mets reference Gates Elise? But anyway, point is, sometimes these players do have colds. Sometimes these players have had a fight with their partner. Sometimes maybe they had a fender bender, and we don't think of that. And maybe we should. I was very touched by Greg's comments there because I didn't know some of what he said. And I feel bad that I didn't. But these issues aren't always brought out into the forefront. How many people throughout history, whether players or not, never talked about it, were told to shake it off, get back in the game, get your head together. And we can't always do that. So when we read Trevor May's tweets from the other day, talking about how he didn't have a tool in his toolbox to fight it. My car had smoke coming from the engine and continuing without addressing it was no longer an option. How many times have we told a player, you don't have an option, you got to play, and we should think about these issues more? Yeah, and I, I think because we are now privy to things maybe we didn't hear because there is a lot more openness Post-game press conferences are broadcast almost live, and the way that the teams are covered, we we hear 
for example, what Buckshaw Walter says about why he's using a particular pitcher the way he is or why he's starting somebody. I guess I try to be, to, to use the word of the day, empathetic, not just say, why are you using Peterson when you could be using McGill or whoever? Or for that matter, when Scherzer, after that lousy start uh, in the playoffs, didn't it, it wasn't quite Tom Glavin, I'm not devastated, which is something that is still hard to get past as a fan. We were all devastated that he couldn't get out of the first inning in the game the Mets had to win. Owen Scherzer said something like, oh, yeah, I, I see what was wrong. And I, you know, if I had another start, I would have fixed it. I kind of rolled my eyes like, well, where, where was this great insight before the, the game where you give up the four home runs? But, you know, sometimes you kind of have either have to say something or maybe that's actually true. Maybe Buck Scholder doesn't have a better option. He has to put a, a happy face on it to keep 26 guys in the clubhouse and to keep his bosses happy. Sometimes I just want these guys to come out and say, I suck today. I don't like anybody being booed, but I also appreciate when a player says if that if that was me, I would have booed me too. But I, I think that they all have their coping mechanisms. It drove me a little crazy a couple of years ago, 21, when the Mets were sort of falling apart and Alonzo kept saying after every game, don't worry about it. We've got this. Everything's great. And I kind of wanted to scream, just admit that it sucks right now to feel our pain. But by the same token, as a, a professional within the kingdom and the power, to quote uh, the the title of Gay Talisa's book on the New York Times, uh, you know, he has to be positive and upbeat. These guys have to see, you know, light at the end of the tunnel instead of just moping with the likes of us who say, oh God, it sucks. Can't you just admit that it sucks right now? They're the ones who, who have to get it done. And, and again, I, I spread that to every aspect of the public facing baseball people, whether it is the manager, whether it's the general manager, whether it's the broadcaster. Sometimes I, I sit and I watch and I can't believe that a broadcaster got a name wrong or can't remember when something happened or just seems clueless. And maybe, you know what, Af after having done uh, this little show for quite a while, I realized, hey, I didn't mean to say Shea Stadium last week. I should have called it City Field. But that happens. We're human. We're people. And I think because maybe especially for those of us who, who predate a multimedia world the way it's come to evolve, we sort of look at everybody on the other side of the screen or maybe even on the other side of the, let's say, newspaper, like they're doing something really special, really important that people like us can't do or don't do. We expect it to, to be, to use Keith Hernandez's phrase, on point all the time. Well, maybe they're just not having a great day for whatever reason. And you mentioned the cold with Pete Alonso. It's funny. We talked last week about my visit to City Field with a press credential. Everybody seemed to be blowing their nose. Everybody seemed to be coughing. And I still noticed it even on this road trip. You could hear or you know, in the clubhouse, they're doing interviews. I could hear some coughing. And I'm thinking there just must be something going around. I'm glad I didn't catch it. But uh, you know, it just gives you an idea of, of the things that happen in the course of a day, in the course of a week, in the course of a year, which is for us a season. We don't have to be happy that, again, the Mets lost the game last night or have lost a few games lately that we thought they would have won, should have won. But I, I guess it just kind of helps us to understand that it happens and it goes beyond, you know, a, a failing of the human condition. It's just one of those things. And, and the fact that Bill Pulsifer came around a few weeks ago at City Field as sort of a, a spokesman of sorts for, for mental health and baseball and to think that, you know, this is a guy who had a promising career 
cut down both, you know, physically and, and I guess we can say mentally, things he had to cope with and deal with. And only now, I mean, again, he he's not been shy about letting people know what he went through, but only now he's like, he's sort of given this his platform forward and we're taking it a little more seriously. I, I think we as fans will always welcome you back when Taylor Buchholz, again, I, I referenced him earlier, made his announcement, I'm not going to be able to pitch next year because I'm going through this. No, I, th- I think that it was greeted with, you know, good for you, hope you get better. And that's how Trevor May seems to be being greeted now. I don't know in three weeks if Trevor May gives up a three-run double or something. A's fans, however many that there still are who are willing to put up with that ownership, are going to say, like, hang in there, Trevor, as opposed to, geez, well, why do we have this guy? And again, that that's just the fan being the fan. In the late Shea Stadium era, I forget who among relief pitchers or position players was being booed vociferously, and it became one of those topics uh, we got into it, Faith and Fear and Flushing, and I remember the comments back and forth about booing, you know, why are you booing this guy? You're not going to help him. And I just remember somebody said in so many words, well, why do I have to feel guilty about this? I'm a guy, I go to the game, I just want my team to do well, and I want, you know, if I'm upset, I'm upset. And I kind of understand that too. It's it's something that is allowed and that we're kind of conditioned to do sometimes. It doesn't make it a good idea, but if we're, we're going to talk empathy, try to see where everybody is coming from to a point, assuming they're not throwing whiskey bottles or, or yelling unconscionable things at players. Ultimately, I guess we all have to kind of take responsibility for ourselves. And if we, or I'll say I, if I'm thinking, you know what, that remark, even if it was kind of clever, wasn't necessary. That screed, I, I, I felt the need to uh, put out there in X number of characters or paragraphs. Yeah, I, I, I feel sort of better now. But what I want to say that to this person's face, if I was actually seeing him. So, you know, maybe if the Mets were, were on a roll right now, I wouldn't be thinking about any of this. I'd be thinking, hey, they've been doing great. <laughs> Let's talk about how great they're doing. Unfortunately, they haven't been doing great. I guess you saw some of that for yourself. I did on Friday. I that was in Denver. I, in fact, I spent the whole weekend in Denver. I went to Friday's game. My wife and I had a lovely weekend in a beautiful city. I went to one game. Fortunately, it was the only game that they won. Unfortunately, they only won one game against a minor league team. But I went Friday with Dave Metz Outsider and his wife, Maura. My wife and I had a lovely time with them. Did you know that Coors Field is the third oldest ballpark in the National League? I've done the math. Coors Field was just opened five minutes ago. But yeah, yeah. 28 years and everything else except uh, Wrigley Field and Dodger Stadium has been replaced. And uh, you know, Army of Steamrollers, all of that. Right. Yeah, Coors Field, 1995. <laughs> right, still a nice ballpark, lousy scoreboard. The font's too small. The scoreboard tries to do too much. The out-of-town scoreboard is hand-operated. I like that. But a nice ballpark. We had a good time. Lots of Mets fans, of course. And we saw a game that was too close. Uh, The Mets should have won by more, but given the way they're going, at least they won. Had a nice time with Dave Metz outsider and his wife. Thank you very much. And Dave, uh, of course, one of our loyal listeners. Sorry we missed you, Metz and Stitches, and our other Denver listeners. We will be back. I will return because we had a great time in a small city, as Dave described it, Denver, Colorado. On Saturday, and there's a reason why I'm getting to this, I went to Golden, Colorado, which is a city as nice as the name. And we went there for the Coors Tour. Greg, did you know that you get drunk quicker in the Thin Mountain Air? That makes sense based on my personal experience drinking 
in the thin mountain air. Yeah, I did not know that, but I know that now. We took the course tour where there were three full pours. It was a great tour, and I'm not sure how much of it I remember. We had a really nice time. It was worth the 20 bucks for the tour. I learned a lot, but I did learn that you get drunk quicker in the thin mountain air, which is something you think they would tell you at the airport. Well, they don't know they're in the thin mountain air. They're, they're just there. To them, this is normal air. <laughs> That's true. Uh, in the tram between the gate and the terminal at DIA, I heard, this is Vinny Castilla, two-time All-Star for the Colorado Rockies. Welcome to Denver. What they should have had is, this is Vinny Castilla of the Colorado Rockies. Remember all those home runs I used to hammer? Well, when you drink, you're going to get hammered quicker because of that thin mountain air. And that would have been helpful. So after our tour, I walked around. I tried to find some pizza, and I'm wearing my Mets cap. And at least five people said to me, let's go Mets. Hey, Mets. And I always reply with LGM because, again, that feels less obvious than Let's Go Mets. But at least five people did. And I ended up at, I think it was Al's New York Pizzeria. And I had a surprisingly good slice. I say surprising because anytime I get a piece of pizza that's good outside of New York, I'm surprised. And there was one guy, and I hope he's listening, who said to me, hey, I'm a Mets fan, too. I'm from Bensonhurst, where are you from? And we talked for a minute. He said that he met a girl from Golden. So I guess that makes her a golden girl. girl. There <laughs> you go. And he decided to stay there after seeing Golden. I can't blame him. And we talked for a few minutes and I told him about the podcast. I hope he's listening. And he said, I love my Mets, but I can't go this week because my wife's pregnant. So again, I hope he's listening. But you've been to Golden too. Yeah, I've been to Golden, Colorado twice uh, on beverage magazine business. Of course, it's a beverage capital. Coors at the time was the third largest brewing company in America. I know that there have been mergers and acquisitions, so I don't know how that shakes out at this point. But Denver is home to the Great American Beer Festival. So there was a trip arranged through Coors to have beer writers come in from all over to visit the brewery and then go to the festival and do a lot of tasting at that high mountain air. The Rockies had just finished their first season when I first went to beautiful Golden, Colorado, say the Table Mountain Inn, where they put Jolly Ranchers in the room. That's what I remember. You get thirsty, have a Jolly Rancher. You know what Vin Scully would, would suck on to keep his, uh, his mouth moist enough because he didn't want to start drinking and running to the bathroom? Jolly Ranchers. That this is a tangent I have gone on. But I remember uh, it was October of 93, the first regular season of the Colorado Rockies just ended. And our tour guide took a lot of pride in the fact that they had had a better record than the first year Florida Marlins. Uh, two years later, I was out there to do a cover story on the good folks of uh, Coors Brewing. And they were very proud to be the title sponsor of Coors Field and took me to Coors Field, took me to the nascent Sandlot Brewery behind the scenes. Uh, one of the finest drinking experiences at mile high altitude I've ever enjoyed. And uh, again, the ballpark was brand new then, but it was it was a thing of beauty. It was the newest ballpark in the National League at the time, but it was the first one that we had in the NL because you had Camden Yards and Jacobs Field and the ballpark in Arlington. May it rest in peace or be a football stadium, whatever it is now. But the National League was just getting on board with that. And it was like such a great place to watch a game, such a great vibe because the Rockies were 
with Vinny Castilla and Andres Galarraga and Dante Bichette and Larry Walker, Hall of Famer Larry Walker, hitting home runs. And, you know, it's funny that you, you told me about Vinny Castilla doing those announcements on the airport train, because if you've ever been on the air train at JFK, you have Vinny Barbarino doing those announcements saying, hey, this is Vinny Barbarino, up your nose with a rubber hose, don't get off here. Uh, it's a totally different vibe, but, uh, you know, the pizzas are reliably good, so we put up with it. But I'm, uh, I'm really glad that you had a Hall of Fame time while you were in Denver. And speaking of the Hall of Fame... Speaking of the Hall of Fame, yes, it is Hall of Fame weekend coming up. The New York Mets are inducting a new class into their Hall of Fame. This is great. This is one of those times where we don't have to say, why don't the Mets put more players or more people in their Hall of Fame? Because they're doing it. And one hopes that it will become a regular feature of the baseball season. The last time the Mets did it was... During the 2021 season, but that's with an asterisk because it was the class of 2020, a little something called COVID got in the way of having special days at the ballpark. So that that class, which was John Matlack, Ron Darling, and Edgardo Alfonso, had to wait a year, but it was a great night when they did it in 2021. It was an overdue night, to be sure, because the last class was Mike Piazza in 2013. They had just seemed to get some momentum going there for a few years. Did classes in 2010, 2012, 2013, let it kind of fade away, but now it's back. That's the important thing. And our class this year uh, announced earlier uh, in 2023 is two players, two announcers who we're going to talk about. Also, hats off, as always, to Jay Harwitz, who is getting the Hall of Fame award. It's a separate spot on a separate wall inside the Mets Museum, but uh, you know it, it is the moral equivalent of a Hall of Famer. So congratulations once more to longtime Mets PR guy and alumni guy and all-around good guy Jay Harwitz. But we're, we're going to talk about those who are going to get plaques in the Hall of Fame. And I will uh, I'll start here with the position player who is going in this year, uh, Howard Johnson. Third baseman, shortstop, outfielder, slugger. Let me tell you what I think about when I think about Howard Johnson. I mean, I think about a lot of things, all Mets, but I just decide to boil it, try to boil it down to one thing for each of these guys. So I'm going to say there are a lot of at-bats in the Hojo portfolio, but I'm going to go with the May 4th, 1991 version, a Saturday afternoon against the Giants at Shea. The Mets were down 4-2 going to the ninth. Buddy Harrelson, then the manager, called on a pinch hitter, Mackie Sasser, to bat for Charlie O'Brien to lead off the inning. Sasser homered. It's 4-3. to three. Then Buddy brought in Mark Carrion to pinch hit for the pitcher, Alejandro Pena. Carrion homered. It's 4-4, four to four, which, of course, is great, except my then fiance, now wife, is waiting for us to go to the movies. We're going to go see Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks, which I'm looking forward to just as much. But I say, yeah, that's great, but we're in extra innings, honey. we gotta got to hold out. Let's go to the later show. So... As she had already begun in our lives and would for decades to come, showed great patience, great fortitude, and waited for me to watch the Mets. And the games go on as games will when there are no ghost runners. And finally, I have to give up watching the game as the 12th inning comes along because showtime is coming. But you know me, I, I bring the old Walkman into the theater. And just as the credits are rolling, the beginning of the film, Howard Johnson with Rick Cerrone on first base and two out, takes Mike Lacoste over the wall in right center. The Mets win 6-4. to four. I let out a quiet yippee, and I can enjoy the movie, and we will go on to enjoy Hojo's greatest season, the one when he leads the National League in home runs and RBIs. 
I think that game stands out for me because it had that who else feeling to it. As in, who else was going to win a 12-inning near marathon with a home run but Howard Johnson? That's who he had become by then. We were past the age of Keith and Gary, and Daryl had moved on to L.A. Hojo had emerged as the man. He filled the role well. Howard Johnson was on deck. Willie Mays was on deck. Willie Mays was on deck when Bobby Thompson hit the home run to win the best of three playoff against the Brooklyn Dodgers. Howard Johnson was on deck when Ray Knight scored the winning run against the Red Sox in Game 6 of the 1986 World Series. That's a strange one thing to remember about Hojo, given all the greatness he brought to the Mets. But that's the one thing I think about him on deck, him crouching down and him exploding into the air when Ray Knight scored. That's my Howard Johnson recollection. Well, you know what? Howard Johnson was on deck and he was ready to emerge as a superstar going into 1987. So I, th- I think that's appropriate. Sort of like that Willie Mays guy was ready to emerge if he hadn't already. In 1951, Howard made life difficult for a lot of pitchers. So to be fair, we're going to come up with a pitcher who uh, made life difficult for a lot of hitters. We're not going to come up with him. Actually, the Hall of Fame uh, has Al Leiter, pitcher from 1998 to 2004, left-hander, had a substantial career before the Mets, had a little bit of a career after the Mets. To us, he's a Met. There are a lot of starts in the Al Leiter portfolio, but I'm going to go with September 20th, 1998 a Sunday afternoon game against the Marlins at Shea. This time I'm not going to the movies. I'm at the game. Everybody is at the game. I am literally in the last row of the upper deck. My friend had recently bought a Saturn, and Saturn had some promotion in which tickets to this game were sent to Saturn owners. It definitely padded the house to the point that it was a legitimate Shea sellout. They picked the right day for that kind of atmosphere. Not only was it a beautiful sunny Sunday, but the Mets were in the thick of their first down-to-the-wire playoff race since 1990. And we couldn't have had a better pitcher on the mound than Al, facing his old team and wearing them on his watch chain, shutting them out for eight innings, while John Olerud led the offense with a home run and a double. Olerud, incidentally, was in the midst of going 9-for-9 in at-bats and 15-for-15 in plate appearances. But the show belonged to Al. Felt like a curtain call for the kid who grew up a Mets fan in New Jersey and had elevated his game once he came here. He was out just long enough with a minor injury in midseason to be not named to the All-Star team when he should have been. Won 17 games anyway. And the Mets would fall off a cliff over the last week of the season, unfortunately, and that ensured that he or no other Met would pitch in the playoffs in 1998. He'd have some playoffs ahead of him, fortunately. That afternoon, though, in September, that was Al in the pressure of the spotlight, a place where he thrived so often. And I can still see him there. I'll go with a different start. October 4th, 1999, the Mets and the Reds, a one-game playoff. What did Al Leiter do? Pitched a two-hitter, 135 pitches, his only complete game of the season, and what a time for it. The Mets win 5-0. That's clutch. That's what Al Leiter was for the Mets. That is one of the greatest pitching performances in Mets history. No better time to have come up with it. You mentioned the pitch count in that game in 1998. Uh, yeah, I think he was up to about 128 when Bobby Valentine pinch hit for him because there were runners on base and they had a chance to score more runs. Otherwise, he probably would have left him out there. And just because this is also what I remember, I'll, I'll mention that Turk Wendell comes in to finish up in the ninth which was on one hand odd because it wasn't a close game and Turk was one of those, as we would now say, circle of trust relievers. On the other hand, Turk had also set a record a la John Olerud pitching in, I want to say, eight consecutive games. Might have, And this might have been number nine. 
But I think more to the point, he knew that Turk Wendell coming in in that situation in this near frenzy of excitement over the pennant race would get him a huge ovation. And it really did. You know, Turk came out through the rosin bag. We all went nuts, all 52,000 of us, even those of us up in literally row V. So it was just a great game. And it's it's a shame. You know, it's, it's one of those those games in a year where it doesn't all work out. You just wish the season in retrospect, it could have, could have ended that day. The Mets had a one game lead for the, for the wild card that would unfortunately blow away uh, over the last five games of the year. But, you know, Al coming up, we both picked games where Al comes up big at the very end of the season. So this is such a well-deserved, like with Hojo, well and a deserved induction as is. And this is just close to our hearts because as much as we've played some ball in our lives, uh, we are Mets fans. And we're going to talk about two Mets fans who've had very important jobs and had a, a great deal of influence on us as Mets fans. Howie Rose, you can't go wrong by calling the voice of the Mets, can you? I have concluded Howie Rose is going into the New York Mets Hall of Fame because he is our Bob Costas, which is to say that when Bob Costas received the Ford Frick Award a few years ago, the so-called announcer's wing of the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, I didn't necessarily feel it was for all the great play-by-play he did. But once you considered all the advocacy he had done on behalf of baseball, essentially being baseball's spokesman in the unofficial sense, there was no denying the import of Costas to telling the story of the game at large. That's Howie, I think, for us. We who go back with him to 1987 remember Mets Extra and the five-hour nightly shows on WFAN well before Howie started filling in on radio play-by-play, then getting the sports channel slot on TV, then ultimately sliding back over to radio full-time in 2004 for sharing the booth with Gary Cohn, then making it his own starting in 2006. Yet that voice of sanity, that voice of reason, but also that voice of the fan is what defined and defines Howie Rose for me. On Mets Extra, he didn't speak to us like he was 30,000 feet above us. He was one of us, and he created the job we needed to have. I mean, we needed to have it exist. We didn't all need to have the job. We have the right man in the job, let's put it that way. He was a truth teller with a memory. He thought things through before speaking. Time has revealed this is a rare gift in broadcasting. So with all due respect to put it in the books and his byplay with his younger colleagues, but I take away from the Met career of Howie Rose, including the MC duties we will miss when he can't induct himself into the hall, is his disdain for hypothetical trades. On WHN and WFAN, Howie took one call after another, where everybody wanted to be Frank Hashem, and Howie politely but firmly told those callers, no. We're not doing hypothetical trades. To this day, I won't do hypothetical trades either. Thank you for instilling me with that, Howie Rose. Put it in the books. To come up with a phrase that's going to live beyond you is something that's wonderful. And I was thinking about the other day, even when Howie's not there, after a Mets win, as few as there have been this season, we all say to ourselves, put it in the books. We see it on social media. And it's all because of Howie. So again, for Howie to come up with a phrase that's not too long, that's not too short, that's not self-aggrandizing, it's perfect. Howie's announcing is almost always perfect. We're so lucky to have him. And when he puts his career in the books, we'll miss him. But for now, after every Mets win, we say, put it in the books because of Howie Rose. That career, as far as I'm concerned, is in its prime. And I don't know what Howie's got planned for his future. Uh, I hope it is behind as many games, behind the mic for as many games as as he chooses. It is just a different broadcast when he's there 
It's a different broadcast when he's not there. No, no offense to anybody who fills in. And you know what? I'll just th- throw this in. How he's worked with a lot of partners since 2006, since uh, he and Gary Cohn were split up, o- almost as if uh, the, you know the teacher uh, saw, saw that they were having too much fun and had to uh, put them in different parts of the classroom. And he's he's thrived with all of them. And sometimes he's he's carried the load. I think sometimes it's been wonderfully complimentary. How he is. Honest to God, I, 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 I've used this phrase before uh, to, to describe uh, c- certain aspects of life. I think Howie's ethnicity is metropolitan American. He is a met, <laughs> and, and we can feel it. And so is the guy he shared the booth with for a couple of years, two, two as they say in Colorado, two golden years in our lives. And all the years that this guy's been, been calling Mets games have been golden, no matter what the hell's been going on in the field. Gary Cohen. I love Gary Cohn so much. God, I, f- I feel like Leo McGarry talking about Jed Bart, but I love him so much. But I'm just going to boil it down to the call that stays with me on radio from June 30th, 2000. You'll know what I'm talking about as soon as it unfolds. Bell is the lead run. He's on second. Alfonso at first with two out. Eight to eight. Bottom of the eighth. Incredible. Mulholland ready to go. The pitch to Piazza. Swing and a drive deep down the left field line. Toward the corner, it's out of here, out of here. Mike Piazza with a line drive, three-run homer, just inside the left field foul pole. The Mets have tied a club record with a 10-run inning, and they've taken the lead 11-8. to Piazza drives in a run for a 13th straight game, and for the first time in 21 years, the Mets have put up a 10-run inning. They've done it against the Atlanta Braves, They've come from seven runs down here in the bottom of the eighth inning. They lead it 11-8. to eight. Incredible. The announcer just told me amid a madhouse at Shea everything I need to know, everything I wanted to know, and told it to me in such a way that it gives me chills to repeat it 23 years later. Gary Cohen? Incredible, indeed. When I think of Gary, I think of so many positive attributes, but I'll give you one, and that's integrity. Think back not long ago. It was a terrible day for us. The Mets had been eliminated by the Padres just last October. Gary wasn't in the booth because it's all national TV broadcast at that point, but Gary was working for SNY. He was at the table, and he just laid into the Mets. He didn't hold back. He didn't soft soap it. He just said that they failed. They collapsed. They lost games they should have won. This was terrible. And I admired him so much for that. He spoke for us. It's what we would have said if we were at that SNY table. His integrity always shines through. And his nomination and his induction is well-deserved. Absolutely. I don't think Gary is quite as... Not as interactive as Howie has become, which is ironic, I suppose, because Howie had like a real allergy to the whole concept of, of fan media <laughs> when it was first coming along. If you, you read his memoir, I think he said, I will never go on Twitter or something like that. Now he's kind of Mr. Twitter because he opened, you know, he opened his mind. Gary plays it a little closer to the vest in that regard, but he's every ounce the passionate Mets fan that Howie is. And, you know, even though obviously it is layered in professional protective sheets. I mean, he's not we, us, our. That would just not fly for either of those guys. But by the same token, he's not the guy who's going to come on, like you said, and make alibis for the team. Again, I think he will be reasonable and rational about it. But I can just picture on so many regional sports networks that I've sampled 
through the years, an announcer in his role in the kind of situation you described, coming on and just putting things in the best possible light for the home team. And that, that wasn't what was called for that night. And Gary Cohen knew that. You know, I, I will confess, you know, to, to great heartbreak at the end of the 2005 season when they announced he was going to television because he was, to me, the greatest radio voice or one of the two greatest radio voices that I had ever known. The other one was Bob Murphy. And that's no disrespect to Vin Scully or any of the, the greats of the game. Just the, the, these guys had been the standard for me. And, and, and that's with keeping in mind that when Gary Thorne left, I was like, who's this other guy? Gary Thorne was good. Why'd they have to let him go? But you know, I got over that soon enough. And I was really sorry that we weren't going to have Gary and Howie together for the rest of our lives, not really understanding just how fantastic a television show we would be given for the next now 18 years and the way he has become a television broadcaster, which he will tell you is a different thing from becoming a radio broadcaster, just as Howie learned that being a radio broadcaster was different from being a television broadcaster. I, I wonder if when it was Howie and Fran and Ralph sometimes and various other voices when he was doing TV for Sport Channel and Fox Sport Net New York, as that became known, if that had happened in the age of social media, if Howie would have been the sensation uh, that GKR, as we call them, has become, and that Howie on radio has become. It didn't feel to me that the cable TV broadcasting of Nets games in those days had quite the cachet it would become when it was sort of all other programming the way it was presented. But Howie did a, a great job keeping things flowing on television those days. Gary has, has just brought it to another level again. It's a three-person team, four, four people on air when you, when you bring Steve Gelbs into it, Kevin Burkhart before him. You know, the whole production, the director, it's just a fantastic TV show. When I found myself after the Chicago, Colorado road trip thinking, kind of had enough of the Mets for one day. I know I know it's Memorial Day. I know we wish for double headers and things like that on uh, national holidays. I just like, I don't want to look at the Mets today. I just need a day off from them. And yet by nightfall, I was thinking, you know, that's a hell of a TV show that's not on today <laughs> because that's really, especially in the bad years, I won't put this year as a bad year just yet. We don't know what it is. But, you know, the, those those years between Shea Stadium and 2015, when it was just, oh, God, here we go with this team that's not even at 500 and at this uh, this stadium that isn't Shea Stadium. I was thinking I, I wouldn't miss these games for the world because Gary and Keith and Ron, led by Gary and certainly accented by Keith and Ron, it wasn't must-see TV. It was not missed TV. And maybe I, I'm sort of like not fully appreciate everything Howie has done on radio because back when, especially like, say, a weekend early when we when we uh, started blogging for example i remember it was it was nothing to me to turn the, the tv down from ted robinson or fran healy or whoever was doing the game dave o'brien and even tom siever on channel 11 turn down the sound i just wanted to listen to to howie and gary i guess i could only have one of them after that and i followed gary to television because it's television let's be honest you like to watch television but i'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this Remember, early in the 2006 season, Gary had just started on television, how he was sticking out on radio and was also doing the Islanders at the time. This was very early in the season. I had went to a, I'd gone to a game at Shea, and there was an Islander playoff game that night. And I, I saw the both of them outside the ballpark. I didn't know either of them at the time, but I certainly recognized them. And there was Gary, who probably walked out of Shea Stadium many times between 1989 and 2005, relatively unrecognized 
And here he'd been on TV for a couple of weeks and people are flocking to him like, hey, hey, you're Gary Cohen. And he seemed like really happy to be recognized and or at least was just very enthusiastic. And I saw how he rose just kind of had to get on with his day because he had to rush to the Nassau Coliseum to do a playoff game. And, you know, I was I, I was half thinking, oh, I should say something. He's Howie Rose. But on the other hand, it's like, no, he's just got to go to work. This is his job. Uh, Announcing the games on the radio for us is his job. Doing the the Islander games is his job. And he's just running off to do what a broadcaster does. And I think ultimately they they both made great choices or whoever, you know, directed them. Like you're the TV guy, you're the radio guy. It's worked out for both of them. It's it's put them to a a place here where they they deserve to be for years. And you you think back to the guys we always bring it back to, or at least two thirds of the guys we always bring it back to, Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner. It was tough to, to watch them separated in the early 80s because... What did Bob Murphy do wrong? He couldn't do television. Was was kind of the vibe, but radio such an important part of being a baseball fan, and I think it just elevated Bob Murphy's place in our consciousness and in the greater baseball consciousness. I think that really helped boost him to the Ford C. Frick Award that he got in 1994, incredibly deservedly so. And you know, as we talked about before, you know, Ralph Kiner had kind of a renaissance of his own on television. So you know, they still saw each other every day. And Howie and Gary presumably still see each other every day and speak so fondly of one another, which is great to know. So Ojo hit a lot of big home runs. Al pitched a lot of big games. I'm very happy that they're in. It's well-deserved. And, you know, at some future date, we'll probably talk about other people who, who deserve this kind of recognition. But God, it just means so much as a fan who's listened and watched uh, so voluminously, let's say, uh, all these years to watch Howie Rose and Gary Cohn, both going to be have in front of their name, New York Mets Hall of Famer. Can't think of a better description and can't think of two more worthy people. The Mets Hall of Fame induction ceremony will be this Saturday at 4.05 Eastern. Greg will be there and we'll talk about it more on next week's show. We thank you for listening. So until next week, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2023 music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify.